Lord, we do agree with those prayers, and we want to lift up all those that are traveling. Some of them probably have arrived, but they'll have a trip back. We just desire that you would, in all their circumstances, protect them, encourage them, strengthen them, continue their ministry amongst uh, family or new people that they will encounter, that they may have opportunities to share you with them, and that you would bless them. And we thank you for them. and class that you've given us here. We desire this morning to focus on your word and to glorify your name as we look at your plan that you have been pleased to reveal and uh, the wonderful aspects of it and the encouragement that it gives us. We desire that uh, you be glorified in all things. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Great passage in Romans 8.28, full of Interesting concepts. In fact, the next two verses as well. The sovereign plan of God, verses 28 through 30. We uh, won't complete it today, but as I said on the uh, email, the outline sheet that we've been using will not expire till the end of the year. (laughs) So, in the book of Romans, I keep stressing, written to real people in a real time at a real city, and there were several churches in the city of Rome. All of them would have been familiar with the Roman Forum. This is the heart of not only the city, but the heart of the empire. And those of you that went on the Israel trip, you might remember that site right there. Unless your eyes were blurred with the rain. We had a little bit of a rainfall when we were at the Roman Forum, but still, I think, enjoyed what we were able to, to see. Is that there in Rome, you know, picture looks like the area? Is that always like that? No, it wasn't. Well, in that photograph, and a lot of times it's okay. hazy. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's just a little bit of a haze, but yeah, it's not as pristine as uh, Greece <laughs> or, or Greece. <laughs> So we're looking at sanctification again. In fact, we're getting close to the end of chapter 8. In fact, I anticipate completing it, I don't know, maybe in a month. We'll see. 6 through 8. And chapter 8, magnificent passage, giving us the power to be able to live the Christian life or the power for sanctification. We have power over the sinful flesh. First 11 verses. Sonship of sanctification, 12 to 17. And even though it's not on the surface, kind of below the surface of the passage, the main emphasis, I think, is suffering in sanctification. Paul takes the big picture approach in giving us the perspective that we should have. So he deals with some spectacular, you might say, things relating to us. But underlying that is the concept of suffering, and in the midst of suffering, we need to keep this perspective. And he gave us a future hope, 18 through 25, that involves the entire universe. All of the created realm anticipates what we await, and if all of the creation, if all of the universe anticipates release, that's the essence of what we have there, We looked at the scientific aspects of it. 
if the whole creation anticipates that, then uh, that should be an encouragement to us in the context and midst of suffering. So we looked at that future hope, and one of the main things that we have in the midst of suffering is the present support of the Holy Spirit. We saw that in verses 26 and 27, and we're in the portion 38 through 30, the sovereign plan, which also is designed to give us encouragement and hope in the midst of suffering. So I see suffering as the main theme, uh, verses 18 through 30, even though it's not on the surface there, what he's giving us is encouragement in facing suffering, because that's the main element that God will use in conforming us to his image and sanctification. So we have the promise of the plan, verse 28, we've been looking at it, and we've been working our way through different Principles of sanctification, 21, suffering is God's main tool for sanctification. So even though it's not pleasant, not desirable, not something that we like or enjoy, we do everything we can to avoid it, yet God can use it, in fact does use it, to uh, conform us to his image. Now we're talking about suffering not as a result of our own choices that are bad or evil or sinful. We're talking about just the normal suffering that others impose or uh, as a result of just living in a fallen uh, fallen world, he will use it. And one of the key passages is the one that we're going to focus in on this morning. Glorification, and he's transitioning from the lostness of this world and the sinfulness of it, and obviously the, the suffering involved in it, to that future glory that only those that know Jesus Christ personally will, in fact, experience. And this passage is only applicable to them, dealing with the believer. So glorification is the end product of everything that we experience here on earth. There's a release from sinful bodies. We have the immediate presence of God. And if you know eschatology or future things, Bible prophecy, Some people talk about the end of the world. That's not accurate. There's an end of an age. We were talking a little bit about it before we got started here. A millennial kingdom, but the church is taken out first, and we will be given glorified bodies. So glorification is the end product of sanctification. Now, we spent all of our time, or most of it last time, looking at verse 28, and we didn't quite get done with it. In fact, we may not get done with it today because it's got some neat stuff. We know that God, in fact, here is a striking principle, uh, a concept, obviously, that the unbeliever does not know. In fact, it does not apply to him. It only applies to those that have trusted in Jesus Christ. And it says, we know, we, in other words, Paul, fellow believers, the church of Rome in the first century, but because it's inspired believers of all time, we know, focused on that knowing, that God causes all things to work together for good. And we looked at a few examples. I'm going to review some of them and give you some new ones in terms of how God does that and uh, ways that he has shown historically, at least that are recorded in Scripture, 
of how God took circumstances that were evil, circumstances that were dreadful, tragic, sinful, transformed them for the believer and worked them for good. And the encouragement is he does the same thing for you and I. When you're in the middle of it, you can't see it, but that's why he's saying these things to keep our thoughts and our mind and our perspective on what God does. So God causes all things to work together for good and gave you a few examples. We won't look all of these up, but I'll have you look up a couple of these. You could even say the very first sin with Adam and Eve, disobedience that brought consequences. Those consequences thrust the entire universe into the condition that we have today, right? In other words, when God created, he created a universe that was very good. That's Genesis 1.31. But then when you get to Genesis 3, we saw that God, because of the first sin of Adam and Eve, that there was a curse that was imposed not only upon them, they degenerated, you might say, they received or their entire nature was was changed. This was promised. In the day that you eat of the tree that's in the midst of the garden, you shall surely die. He's not talking about ceasing of breathing. He's talking about, we've gone over this several times, a degeneration. In fact, I believe at the moment that they did sin, their individual cells began to die and their ceasing of breathing in terms of Adam, 900 and what was it, 30 years later, but they began to die. and Their, their, their whole mentality changed. That was intellectual death. Their spirits, obviously, were separated from God. That's spiritual death. Their emotions were affected such that now you have negative emotions. They experience fear for the first time and shame. So this is that comprehensive death. All of the universe and the second law of thermodynamics was imposed. So the law of decay, the law of disorganization, which you can observe in every science, took place. And then we saw Genesis 3.15, God's going to turn all of that around. And we have the first promise that God is going to deal with sin, Genesis 3.15. It's going to come from the seed of the woman. In other words, a descendant of the woman focused on a line of descendants that will come from Eve through Noah. In fact, the line goes through Noah. We have a record of the Old Testament, that line traced through the kings, particularly David and Solomon, all the way to Jesus Christ. He will deal in an ultimate way with, with sin and death. But even then, we have all of the prophecies that speak of resurrection. And that's the ultimate solution. And that starts in Genesis 3.15, where God's going to transform evil and use it for good. The example that we mentioned last time, a dramatic example in the book of Genesis, Joseph. And you remember? In fact, why don't we look that one up? That one's a good one to read. Somebody look up Genesis 50. You got it? And somebody else look up Deuteronomy 8. Who's got it? Dwayne, why don't you do that one? And Acts 2.23, in fact, I'm going to use that one on a couple of occasions today. You got it, Sandy? Let me give you the background of Joseph. Remember, Joseph 
was the youngest son at the time. The others were older, obviously, and grown, some of them, but he was the youngest. And God gave him visions, or dreams, rather, and predicted certain things. And he tells the family of these dreams, which is a positive thing. The brothers were jealous. The brothers were angered. The brothers had animosity. First, they were going to kill him. And then the older said, no, let's make some money off of him. Let's sell him to this caravan. They probably didn't even know where the caravan was going. The caravan is heading to Egypt. So now their youngest brother, they got money for it, is transported to Egypt. Remember the story in the book of Genesis. And now in Egypt, God blesses him because God is going to use him and prepare him. So he spends years in Egypt. In the story of Genesis from, what is it, chapter 37, all the way to the end of the book. So a large portion of the book of Genesis is the story of Joseph. And he experiences lots of hardship. He's a foreigner in a foreign country, a young boy, probably a teenager, 17, I think, if I remember the chronology. And he ends up in jail, falsely accused. So he experiences all of these negative things. And God is working sovereignly. In fact, that's what we're going to talk about, this sovereign plan. And eventually, God blesses him such that he ends up, because of his wisdom, and is recognized by the Pharaoh, second in command over the world empire of that day. Egypt was the power of the day. It was like the United States, you could compare. They were the main power. Similarity between Daniel and Joseph. Yes. Both the yep. way out of the land, and both were made close to the leader of that nation. Exactly. And, um, both, both suffered. Both suffered and both had lots of some dreams and Yes, some parallels there. So there's a lot of parallels. And through this, God is working, brings a famine in Canaan, and the rest of the family end up in Egypt. And Joseph, in his wisdom, is working such that he is bringing the family together. This family that God has made tremendous promises was on the verge of ripping itself apart. You see that in Genesis 37, 38. And God, over several years, over lots of time, brings about, brings about the bringing together. And what does Joseph say? How does he interpret it in Genesis 50, 19, and 20? Go ahead, Dave. Joseph said unto them, Fear not, for am I in the place of God? But as for you, you thought evil, but God meant it unto good, to bring to pass as it is this day, to save much people. Okay. They meant evil. Great evil. In fact, they were going to kill him. God took all of those circumstances over many, many years, turned it around, transformed it, and he saved the family through Joseph. Because God made promises. God, this is that sovereign plan. God made promises that he, his, in history, worked all of those circumstances That's at the heart of the passage we're looking at in terms of the believer. God does the same thing. He worked it for good. They meant evil. He worked it for good in their lives. Now, obviously, there were a lot of consequences that they had to suffer that 
they brought on themselves because of their sin, but eventually because God made those promises, he's going to fulfill it. Later on, many centuries, the children of Israel, remember they were on the verge of rebellion as well in the wilderness after God did these miraculous things for them, the exodus. They saw the demonstration of power during the plagues. God delivers them from slavery, years and years that they spent in slavery. This is after Joseph. Next book, book of Exodus. We have a record, in fact, 40 years later, Deuteronomy 8, 15, and 16. What does it say there? Who led you through the great and terrible wilderness. That's God who led them through the terrible wilderness. In which were fiery serpents, scorpions, and thirsty lands, where there was no water, who brought water for you out of the flame. So God continues to do miraculous things for them, children of Israel. Who fed you in the wilderness with man, which your fathers did not know that he might humble you and test you to do good. Okay, so he's bringing about, in spite of their sinfulness and their evil, he preserves that second generation, and if you keep on reading, that second generation is the one that enters the land. David? Like in 17 and 18. Okay, go ahead. Now said in thine heart, my power and the might of my hand got me this wealth, but thou shalt remember that the Lord thy God it is he yep. that giveth thee this. He transforms for the believer, turns evil, transforms it into good. And the ultimate evil, what is the greatest evil that ever took place in world history? The crucifixion. You're close, Karen, but no price. <laughs> price goes to, what's your name again? The sinless man, the one, the son of God, the one that had no sin, came to earth. Now, notice what this passage says, and it's right in line with what we're going to talk about in verse 28. You got that one? Sandy, read it loud. Yeah. Acts 2.23. Yeah, Jesus. Being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, we have taken, and by wicked hands have crucified and slain. Okay. By wicked hands, that's a crucifixion. In fact, in Peter's sermon in Acts chapter 2, he's explaining, basically, Jesus is the Messiah, and he's convicting not only the Roman Empire, but the Jewish people that uh, led him to crucifixion. By the hands of evil men, but what is it preceded by? A predetermined plan. In other words, a sovereign plan. And the most evil act, the crucifixion of the sinless Son of God, who is God himself incarnate as man, He that crucifixion, that's the means that God used to transform that evil and make available salvation. Transformation for good. See that? And for believers, we could look up just one passage that kind of indicates how God can use this on an individual basis for the believer who wants to read that one. Get that one, David? Second Corinthians four sixteen and 17. For which cause we faint not to our outward man perish, but yet the inward man is renewed day by day. In other words, we experience suffering. This is part of life. 
for our life affliction, which is but for a moment, worketh for us a far more exceeding and weight. Okay, an eternal weight of glory. That's the individual believer. In other words, when we suffer, not as a result of our own consequences of sin, not as a result of what we in our sinfulness do, but as a result of living in a sinful world at the hands of others that are evil, God is preparing greater glory. And if you read even earlier in First Second Corinthians, it talks about our suffering can be used in order to comfort others and to encourage others here and now as well. And there's lots of examples, but here are probably the most vivid ones that I'm aware of in Scripture that are easy to see how God transforms the evil of others and the evil of the world in which we live in and use it for good so that in Romans 8.28, we know, we know by revelation, remember I made stress that point, oida is a Greek word, we know because of what God has revealed, and I've given you some examples, and the Roman believers would have known of these examples, they would have been familiar, some of them, with the Old Testament. We know that God causes all things to work together for good, to those who love God. In other words, only those that are believers. This is a phrase that describes in many other contexts those that have a relationship and love God. And if that's not clear, to those who are called. We're going to talk a little bit more about that in the next verse. Last week we focused on that on that idea, those who are called. I think it's a kind of a special word. I gave you a word study on it. There's the noun form in verse 28. There's a verb form in verse 30. And uh, Maddie has a couple questions on those words. Slide. Okay. Go ahead. So, when Jose walked, so I mean... Because you weren't here last week. Um, right. But Joseph says to them, been done lie. Yes. So not only did his family benefit, Absolutely. But the, but the known world in that time was saved because of it. And we can't say that all of them were helping like this. You're saying, I think I know what you're saying. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, the ultimate good that the, is only for the believer but there's kind of a residue or there's an overflow of God's good that others benefit as well that are not believers. But ultimately, uh, all things are not going to work for good for them. They're going to end up in the lake of fire because they've rejected the Lord Jesus Christ. They may experience some temporal benefit that's the overflow of the benefit that the believer receives. But this verse, 28, pertains to the believer in that context, in other words, sanctification. Yeah. But there's common grace. It's the concept of common grace that we speak of, that you're speaking of, that does not necessarily, is not necessarily what Romans 8.28 is dealing with. It's not dealing with common grace. It's dealing with grace for the believer. But then I just want to point out that Joseph's example is also... Yes, also. Right. In fact, not just that culture... But we today benefit because it's Messiah that comes from that family. It's Jesus Christ that comes from that family. And God was preserving that line, which included Judah, that Jesus came through. 
David. You take that same thing that Mary said, where Jesus comes and dies for everyone, the whole world, but not all are saved. That's it's, right. It's grace for everybody. It's available. Not everybody's going to take it. Right. Yeah. A lot of people reject it. In fact, the majority. And the Karen, thing that reminds me of the verse that's talking about um, unbeliever and the believer who married. That might be the same. That unbeliever who's married to the believer, there's a deal of grace and mercy. Mm-hmm. And that person might be, that's an example of how that person benefits. Yes. Yeah. In that relation. Yeah. Absolutely. In fact, because the believer is the salt of the earth, the culture benefits that includes believers and unbelievers. Well, and just think of our families and those who love that I'm saved and that we just try to live or out even walk with them. That they- yep. They have opportunity to hear the gospel. Exactly. Okay, we have two terms. The noun form, kletos. Same root, same family, word family. And then you have a verb. Remember in Greek, you have a noun and a verb that usually are closely related. Kaleo, very common. We went over all this. I'm just going to review it here in verse 30 because he's going to use that a couple of times. The word calling. The word is used in a general sense just to identify. In other words, we call Jeremy, Jeremy, because that's... His name, we identify him with the word or the sound Jeremy. And it's used very commonly for individuals, for cities, mountains, whatever, called mountain, whatever. It's also used to invite to an occasion. In other words, call people to the wedding feast that I gave you the example there. Jesus was called to attend the wedding feast where he performed that first miracle, John 2.2. It's used to summon to a place. In other words, come to class. I send you a email every week. It's a calling, you might say. It's a summoning, giving you basically the outline and what we're going to do. Or it's like an invitation, but it's more in terms of uh, a summoning. The word kaleo is used in that context. Hmm? It's kind of like a subpoena. Not my email, though. <laughs> <laughs> and we have an, act, an example that we looked up last time, Acts 4.18. And then it's used in a, this is kind of the everyday usage. Remember I mentioned that all theological words in the Bible have a common everyday setting and use where the same word is used. The Bible doesn't use these, I don't know, mysterious, mystical words. The Bible takes words that are used commonly Every one of the theological words that I'm aware of, in fact, challenge you to find one that doesn't have this kind of everyday usage. But then it's used in a theological sense in terms of God calling, God calling. And even this, there's a broad usage of ways that God calls. I'm going to come back and we're going to look at things that God calls us to. In this context, I think it is broad. And it involves a special calling that each individual has. And I think God uses the gospel message to draw people to himself, call them to himself. And in that, he's talking about that calling that results in a response. In other words, a response that ends in becoming a believer. We'll talk some more about that. I want to come back to that because we're going to have it again in verse... 30. 
So we've been looking at these terms, to know, know by revelation, not experience, working together. We looked at that one. All circumstances working together, God's sovereign plan, and that's the idea of synergeo. That sounds like synergy. Well, it's related to that. I use that as an example as well in chemistry. And then we have kletos here, and then we'll have kaleo in verse 30, called. This is a, an effectual call. Some people describe it in that way. In other words, a call that results in a response, not just an invitation. Now, the word, I think, like in Matthew 22, is used in a, in a sense of including an invitation, where it says many are called, but few are chosen. This context All of the called are also those that respond, or those, you might say, that are chosen. And let's look and spend the rest of our time, those who are called according to his purpose. This is why I see this calling more than just an invitation. In other words, here's your opportunity to trust in Jesus Christ because he's done everything for you on the cross. You can take it or leave it. If you leave it, there's eternal consequences. If you take it, then God will come and indwell in you, transform you, give you his forgiveness of sin, give you his salvation. That's what I think he's talking about here, according to his purpose. And in this context, again, it's dealing with the purpose that God has for those that have trusted in him. So I think what he's dealing with in this, he has specified who are those that receive this working of God where he's working all things. It's not the unbeliever. The unbeliever could care less about God, has no sense of God. All he does is go about his own business day by day, thinking in terms of him as prominent. He's talking about the believer. And if that's not clear enough, those who love God, now you might say, well, there's some believers that live like an unbeliever and you don't see any love. Well, the next phrase, those who are called according to his purpose, that catches everyone. So I think it's very specific. Let's talk about this purpose. And I'm going to expand here. In fact, we won't get done. But I'd like to look at this concept because it's a very important one. In the context of suffering, God has a plan. And not only in suffering, but in every area, there is a purpose that God has. And I went into a lot of detail in the course that I just taught. In fact, Sandy took it. So this will be familiar to you, Sandy, in terms of this broad purpose of God that I think... In this passage, this is one of the central passages that talks about the purposes of God. There's a revelation of this plan. And let's take a look at that revelation of the plan. The plan, there's many terms. I don't want to spend a lot of time here. But this concept is Old Testament. This concept is also New Testament. So you would expect some Hebrew terms, Old Testament terms. You want to pronounce that one for me? Ah, there we have a Hebrew student. Yatsar, translated purpose or plan in the Old Testament. Can have other uses this as well. Yatsar, here's another one. Yaatz. Sometimes it has a translation of counsel. In other words, God's counsel. And what I think is in view is 
kind of a Trinitarian idea. In other words, God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit counsel together to bring about certain things in history. When God created the universe, he had a plan for it. That plan he has revealed to us in Scripture, and sometimes he uses these terms to describe that plan. And the wonderful thing is those that have trusted in Jesus Christ fit in with that plan. Now, there's a plan for the unbeliever, but it's not very positive. So the counsel or advice, yatsah or yaatz, yatsar, yaatz. And then in the New Testament, proorizo, we're going to look at that word. We're going to come back to it. Predestined, that's the word that we have in uh, verse 29. So we're going to take a close look at it, not today. It also can be translated purpose in some context. The purpose of God or this predetermined idea. In other words, God has determined many things ahead of time. History is just a record of what God revealed early on. In fact, Bible prophecy is the study of how God has revealed things that have taken place. In fact, many of the things in the life of Christ were predicted hundreds of years before. And in the case of Genesis 3:15, thousands of years before. Jesus is the seed of the woman that's predicted in Genesis 3.15. There is still in the future from our time things that have not been fulfilled yet. We call that Bible prophecy from our perspective. So one of the words that is used to describe this plan, proarizo and uh, protasso, to fix or to determine something, Sometimes it's used to describe this plan that God has. It's fixed. It's determined. In fact, it's predestined. It could be translated in that way. And the word that we have here is prothesis. Prothesis to predestine, or it could be translated as purpose. They're kind of interchangeable. All these three are somewhat synonymous, describing this broad plan. This is the word that we have in this context. I should have included purpose for it. That's the word that's translated according to his purpose in Romans 8.28. So let's look at some examples and we'll spend the rest of the time where God acts sovereignly, totally in control. And I made the point over the natural realm. There's lots of examples of that in scripture. We've looked at that. And in general, and I've got some of these on slides because I made slides for them when I was teaching it. So here's one, Psalm 33, kind of in a general broad sense, verses 10 and 11, 33, 10 and 11. The Lord nullifies the counsel of the nations. One of the words, one of the Hebrew words. Be the second one. Ya'atz. The Lord nullifies the plan, you might say, or the counsel or the the desires of the nation. So God overrides what happens on a broad basis, even the nations. Some believers think that God worked to nullify the plans of Hillary Clinton <laughs> to bring about things, and I'm not going to comment further on that. The Lord nullifies the counsel of the nations. He frustrates the plans. Now, he gives lots of latitude, and he does lots of permitting, you might say, 
But ultimately, anything that he is going to accomplish that goes against that, he can frustrate it. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. In the same word, the counsel of the Lord stands forever. In other words, what God has determined, that's going to stand forever. Not even nations can thwart what God has planned. And then the verse goes on, the plans, a different word, probably the uh, Yatsar, probably, the plans of his heart from generation to generation. In other words, long periods of time, generations all the way into the millennial kingdom. God is going to accomplish what he has determined. Okay, So that's kind of general. If you want an individual passage, a good one in the Old Testament is Psalm 139.16. Your eyes have seen my unformed substance. Here's for pro-life people, people that believe that God is at work in the womb. And most believers believe that. God, your eyes, speaking of God, have seen my unformed substance. He's speaking of in, in the womb. And in your book, I, I use this because God has a record. Remember, he sees all things. He knows all things. Nothing secret to him. He knows our thoughts, our hearts, every individual. And in your book, there's a record. We're all written, the days were ordained for me. Another idea of a plan. God has ordained certain things or determined certain things. One of the words that I alluded to earlier. In your book were written the days that were ordained for me, when as yet there was not one of them. And in this context, he's talking about being formed in the womb, basically. So before day one, God already has a plan for individuals. So you can apply to individuals. There's lots of passages where God has cared for Israel. We read one of them, that passage that we talked about in Deuteronomy. There's many others. In fact, you want some other ones. You could use that Genesis uh, 50 passage as well. Even before Israel was a, was a nation, God was working. But you have... Passages like uh, Jeremiah 29, 11, when they are about to go into exile, God is going to discipline them. For I know the plans that I have for you. This is Jeremiah 29, 11. God has plans for Israel. He's going to restore them. And in fact, he's going to restore them to prominence after he deals with the church age. It's the next period of time. But in Jeremiah 29, 11, for I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare, not for calamity. They're going to face calamity. They're going to go into exile. But that's not going to be the end of the story. Not for calamity, to give you a future and a hope. So God is going to care for Israel and he's preserved them in spite of the Hitlers of the world in spite of the Spanish Empire that tried to exterminate them, in spite of even earlier in the time of Esther when the Persian Empire tried to destroy them. This is after that. In spite of anti-Semitism today, God continues to preserve them because they have a future and a hope. Because he made a covenant and promises that are not yet fulfilled. There's a plan. Honor his word. Yeah, and he's laid it out. 
Exactly. Then you can done. Exactly. And in fact, Israel experiences discipline. Isaiah five nineteen. Who say, "Let him make speed, let him hasten his work, that we may see it, and let the purpose." This is in terms of Israel. Purpose of the Holy One of Israel draw near and come to pass that we may know it. Now it anticipates God dealing with Israel. And even in Isaiah's day, there was great apostasy and decline. But God reminds them of a plan. And there's other verses as well, also in Jeremiah. There's a plan to rebuild Israel. Now most of these passages deal with after the exile. Uh, we won't go over them. Plan over the nations. You can use that Psalm 33 passage that I gave you earlier as as well as an example. And even in the life of Jesus, you see examples of God working sovereignly. And then the passage that we looked at earlier, the crucifixion, let's look at it again. This man, capitalized, Peter in this sermon, delivered up by what? A predetermined plan. In fact, it is predetermined all the way back to Genesis 3.15. The serpent is going to, what? Bite the heel. Now, it's kind of cryptic and it's not clear, but if you put together all of the progress of Scripture and Revelation, most theologians believe it's a reference to the Messiah or to Jesus Christ. Now, Christ will inflict a fatal blow ultimately crushing the head of the serpent, but he will experience a a blow. That's the predetermined plan, and this plan was before the foundations of the world, before God even created, and he, he's working through history to orchestrate that plan. Delivered up by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, God knowing everything ahead of time. In fact, that's the word that we have here in this context again. In fact, all of these words are going to come together when we get to verse 29 and 30. For knowledge, predestination, part of this plan, and then the details relating to our justification. And predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you, in other words, they are responsible for their evil. God holds them responsible. He's addressing the Roman Empire in the first century and the Jews that were a part of the crucifixion. They chose... Right. You nailed... No, no. They chose. You nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. See the plan? And that death on the cross, God used as our substitute because we deserve to die. The penalty of sin is death. He put that on Christ on the cross. Predetermined plan. For truly, in chapter 4, this is also in the book of Acts, for truly in this city there were gathered together against thy holy servant Jesus, whom thou didst anoint, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, actual historical individuals, along with the Gentiles, so everyone's guilty, and the peoples of Israel, Israel doesn't escape, to do whatever thy hand and thy purposed pre destined to occur. There's a plan. Man is held responsible for his evil and God transforms that evil and uses it for good. Tolkien calls that a use 
catastrophe. Who calls it what? Token. Oh, token. So our original catastrophe, but turned on its head. And only God can do that. Okay. Acts twenty twenty seven. For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole purpose of God. So you want more? If you want more details on the purpose of God, it's centered in Christ. And in terms of us, in our relationship to Christ, Paul lays it out. Read the letters of Paul. In fact, there's lots of quotations that we can build from him. So we have Jesus, we have the crucifixion, salvation is one of those, and I think that's the focus of Romans. And he's bringing it all together in Romans 8.28. And there's a place for the believer he's going to use, in fact, he... In Ephesians 2.10, you can write that one down. In fact, you want me to read that one? Because it pertains to how we live today. For we are his workmanship. He's talking about the believer. Remember in the beginning verses, we're saved by grace through faith. We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. Ephesians 2.10. Everything is going to come to consummation. I've got another verse here, Ephesians 1, 9 through 11. He made known to us the mystery of his will. God has a will or a plan according to his kind intention, his desires, which he purposed. Which he purposed in him, capitalized. So who's in reference there? Purposed in Christ with a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of times. There's going to be a future age when all of these things are going to be summed up. Consummation of all things. Suitable to the fullness of time. That is the summing up of all things. Bringing all things together. In other words, all of the events are going to work together. Romans says for good. And it goes on. Summing up all things in Christ, things in heaven and things upon the earth. So not just the physical universe, but things in the spiritual realm. In him also we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined. There's our word again. According to his purpose. There you go again. Who works all things after. There's another word that we've looked at. The counsel. Remember I used that one at the very beginning. The counsel of his will. All things are going to sum up. It's best to align our lives today in him because you don't want to be left out for one and you don't want to be out of step with him. There are future events that he's going to bring about and there's a lot of future prophecy that has not yet been fulfilled that are part of this plan that God is going to bring about. And the word here prothesis, purpose, a divine purpose that has an eternal ending or an eternal aspect to it. We run way over time. Not only does God have a broad purpose and a plan, but he's given each one of us a purpose for life. You can only find it in Christ. And the question is, are you fulfilling what he has called you to do? Jeremy, why don't you close for us? Lord, we just pray to this promise word and uh, just like you said we can have the whole sleep with the friends and family as we, as we travel those just help your light shine out of this as we uh, seek to bring glory to you through our actions thanks